Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for the church. And I have a brother and a brother-in-law who both have spouses and I also have in-laws, all of whom don't believe in Christ. And the problem that we found is that most of these people whom we dearly love, they have everything they want. And how do you convince someone who doesn't need anything that they need Jesus to rescue them from their sin? Especially because most of these people are even more noble than I am. My in-laws could stand here and give you a better example of sacrificial service for other people than I could ever give you. But the good news of God's free mercy is so hard. God's free mercy is this. It's that God sent Jesus, an innocent man, to suffer and die so that guilty people like us who trust in him could be rewarded with eternal life. The point is that our standing before God has absolutely nothing to do with our best or our worst efforts. This message is hard for people who have put in a lot of effort. And that's not surprising that the message is hard for them because the message is still hard for me. And we'll see why in today's text. We're studying the book of Job, going through the book, and today we come to chapter 15. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 273. Chapter 15 marks the beginning of the second cycle of speeches between Job and his three friends. Job is a man who has undergone some incredibly difficult things. And he wants to know why God would do this to him. His three friends have come to help. And each of them has taken a turn trying to answer Job's questions of why God would do this to him. Job has responded to each one in turn. And in the last speech, chapters 12 through 14, Job decided that he could not trust these friends of his anymore. He decided that he must argue his case directly with God. Eliphaz, who was the first friend to speak, now speaks again. See, he begins the second cycle for us. And Eliphaz is terribly offended by Job's argument with God. And because it's easy for us to get lost in all the poetry and the lengthy speeches, we need to take a moment at the beginning of this sermon to understand what's at stake in these speeches and what's at stake in the book of Job. Because Eliphaz and company, his two friends with him, they hold firmly to a system of religion where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. The modern-day term for this system of religion is karma, where what goes around comes around. If you do good, good will come back to you. If you do bad, bad will come back to you. And this modern-day system of religion of karma is not limited to Buddhists who wear long robes and who shave their heads. It's actually the religion 
of everyone who thinks that their fate will be decided when their good deeds and their bad deeds are put on a scale. And at the end of time, as long as the good outweighs the bad, God will approve. Job's argument with God threatens this system of religion directly. And perhaps his arguments threaten you a bit if you can understand that good versus bad weighing on the scales. Job is saying that very bad things have happened to me, a very good person. And I must take up my case with God because this doesn't make any sense. Consider what's at stake here. Because if it's possible for good people like Job to suffer bad things, the system must be broken. And therefore, it's also possible for bad people to gain a very good reward. That shakes everything up. Because it means that Job's friends who are living at peace, they might not actually be good people. And it also means that there just might be a way for God to justify the wicked and welcome them into his family. What's at stake in the book of Job is the good news of God's free mercy, independent of works. That what's at stake is the message that your eternal fate has nothing to do with your good deeds. This is what the Bible calls good news. And the biblical term for it is the gospel. And I have to say that this good news was not yet good news for Job because Job saw only the dark side of it. But Job's experience makes it possible for it to be good news for us. But this good news is so, so hard. And Job chapters 15 through 17 will give us two reasons why the good news is so hard. These reasons might help you as you relate to the good people in your life. And they might help you to address areas of lingering self-righteousness in your heart. So you'll see on your outlines why the good news is so hard. We've already seen what's at stake. The two reasons why it's so hard is because it offends those who don't think they need it. And finally, it disturbs those who firmly believe it. Let me pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll read the passage, part of the passage, and talk about it. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together to worship you as a church, as your body. And to study your word, we pray that you would please have mercy on us and help us to see our need for your mercy and for your grace. Help us to trust you, to see why the good news is so hard. And as we see how hard it is, help us to know you more and grasp even more tightly to what you have given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we must see that the good news offends those who don't think they need it. And as I read through chapter 15 and we read Eliphaz's speech, some of you may resonate with Eliphaz. And if so, the application is going to be this. Please get off that treadmill. Please just get off it. And that will be the main application. I'm going to spend more time tracing out applications when I get to Job's speech in chapter 16 and 17. But first, 
Let's take a look at what Eliphaz has to say. Eliphaz is offended by Job's argument with God. First, because the good news offends him because it seems irreverent. Job 15, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue an unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. You see, Eliphaz thinks that Job condemns himself Because he speaks iniquity, Eliphaz doesn't have to condemn him. And by choosing to argue with God, he's actually doing away with the fear of God. And he's hindering meditation before God. Eliphaz is saying, Job, we are good people trying to serve God. And because you have cut yourself loose from proper abasement and respect of the Almighty... You're not acting in a way befitting one who worships God. To illustrate, I know of a church that has lots of quiet tension among its members between the old guard and the new guard. And I spoke to one person recently, one older person in this church, who expressed great, great disapproval of the young people in the church who brought their coffee into the worship service. And I asked this person, what's, what's the problem with that? And this person said, the problem is that it's not respectful. It's, it's irreverent. This is the house of God. What are they going to do next? Bring all their breakfast with them? Yeah, there's Bill with his coffee back then. <laughs> the, one of the oldest ones in our church. We have the opposite problem. The young people are like, what are you doing? (laughs) Now, I'm not saying whether you should bring coffee to church or not. But if you think that what you do is what makes you right with God, it makes sense that you would be bothered by something like bringing your coffee to church. The good news offends those who don't think they need it because it seems irreverent. Second, It creates an appearance of arrogance. I won't read the next stanza, verses 7 through 10, but in essence, Eliphaz says, Job, you think you're better than we are. Because Job has been freed from trying to please God by his good works, because obviously it hasn't worked. His good works haven't pleased God. And he turns away from his friends to argue boldly with God himself. And when someone does that, It doesn't go over well, and it makes it look like you think you're better than we are. You think you're closer to God than we are. It creates an appearance of arrogance. The third reason why it it is offensive is because it rejects the comforts of well-meaning loved ones. Look at verse 11. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? 
Eliphaz accuses Job here of considering God's comforts too small. And make no mistake, when he accuses Job of considering God's comforts too small, he is saying, you have rejected my words, the word that deals gently with you. Why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. See, Eliphaz, among the three friends, he's the sensitive one. He feels like Job has rejected his comfort and has rejected his counsel in favor, verse 16, of corruption and injustice. Job's view that his standing before God has nothing to do with what he does, to Eliphaz, that seems incredibly unjust. Eliphaz here is like unbelieving parents whose young adult has child has converted to Christ and they feel that that conversion is a rejection of everything that they've taught them. Because I, I love you, my child, and what I want for you is for you to be a good person. I want you to have stability. I want you to make your mark and have some fun. And you're rejecting everything that we've tried to comfort you with. Jesus and his good news threatens all of that. It rejects the comforts of well-meaning loved ones. The fourth reason why the good news offends those who don't think they need it ultimately is this, because it means the cosmic scales are broken. Remember Eliphaz's view of things, that good people get a good reward and bad people get a bad reward. And in the rest of this chapter, Eliphaz again reminds Job of this hallowed tradition that's been passed down among the wise all through the ages. In verse 17, he says, I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told, without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. And he starts by talking about what happens to the wicked man himself. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness and he is marked for the sword. And Eliphaz actually uses some of the same terminology that Job has used in past speeches. Job, are you in pain? Job, do you feel dreadful sounds? Job, do you feel like you're in darkness? Those are all signs of the wicked man. And then go down a few verses. Why these things happen to the wicked is because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. Because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist. Eliphaz gives two reasons for why the wicked man suffers. First reason is because the wicked man defies the Almighty. He runs against him with a thickly bossed shield. Let me argue with God. 
He says that's defiance. And the second reason, he says, is because he's covered his face with fat and his waist with fat. In other words, he's saying you love your stuff too much. You've gotten fat on all the stuff you love. You're eating a lot. You love stuff more than God and you're getting fat over it. And what he does in the rest of the chapter is he describes what happens to all that stuff that the wicked person loves. First, he described what happened to the wicked person himself. And then from here, he lives in desolate cities, in houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. And he goes on. For the rest of the chapter, all his stuff is taken away. He lives in desolation and ruin and emptiness, and he has no friends. And he ends with, they, the godless, the wicked, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. Because he says, if you are enduring trouble and evil, you must have given birth to it. That's what happens. Eliphaz is right back to the cosmic scales of justice. He's saying, Job, if you feel this way about these things and these bad things are happening to you, Job, what does that say about who you are? And even more, what does that say about your standing before God? How does this apply to us? Friends, if you think of your life as one of preparing for the cosmic scales of justice where your good deeds and bad deeds will be weighed against each other, please know this. You are not on God's side. God will blast this guy and demand that he ask Job to intercede for him. The good news of free Salvation for sinners through the death of Jesus is hard to swallow because it offends those who are committed to believing in themselves. It means the cosmic scales are broken and your good deeds will never be good enough. That's the first reason why the good news is so hard. It offends those who don't think they need it. But let us now turn to consider Job's response in the next two chapters. Because the book of Job is, it's not a book about how easy and wonderful the good news is. The book of Job is a book about how hard it is to have your standing with God be completely divorced from your best efforts. So we must grapple today not only with the offense given to unbelievers... But we almost also must grasp, grapple with the disturbing degree of endurance God expects of believers. This is the gospel, the good news. Your good deeds or your bad deeds have nothing to do with your fate. For Job, this was not yet good news because it left him utterly hopeless. But it clarified something for him. It clarified for him that his eternal fate was actually wrapped up in the fate of another. And Job did not yet know Jesus by name,
But that didn't prevent him from suffering with Jesus in order that he might be glorified with Jesus, as Paul would later say in Romans 8.17. Why is the good news so disturbing? Job will show us three reasons. First is that the pain never goes away. The pain never goes away. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? He says, are you still talking? Why are you still talking? What has provoked you? And if you're provoked, let me give you something else that will really provoke you. I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Or I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. He says if our positions were reversed, I could do what you're doing and be nasty. Or I could try to assuage your pain with good words. But it doesn't matter either way. Look at verse 6. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear... How much of it leaves me? You see, he could respond to Eliphaz, or he could hold his peace and forbear with him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Either way, he won't feel any better. The pain never goes away. How does this apply to us? In our situation, friends, if the good news is true, and if your works do not make you right with God... That means there will always be more sin in your life for you to repent of. It means there will always be more confession to be made. It means that God will expect you to take up your cross and follow him. This means giving up the stuff you enjoy and speaking to people you would rather avoid and deepening relationships when you might prefer more solitude. Children, this means there's always more for you to learn. There's always more for you to practice. Children, your parents will always have more instruction for you. The pain never goes away. God will count you innocent because of Christ, but he might treat you as though you were guilty, at least in a way that makes others wonder if you're guilty. As Paul says in Acts 14, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. Christians don't just believe once when they get baptized and stand up in front of people and talk, tell everyone about how great Jesus is and how happy they are to be a Christian. True believers make it to the end and still believe on the last day through all the tribulation. That's the first reason why the good news disturbs us is because the pain never goes away. Second, the good news disturbs those who firmly believe it because it mandates a cruciform existence. Eliphaz took offense at Job and at the message implied by his arguments. And it would be tempting to respond by softening the message, by returning to the cosmic scales of justice. But Job doesn't do that. He doesn't backpedal backpedal at all. He basically says, Eliphaz, are you offended by this? Let me tell you the really offensive part of this whole thing. And it's that the good news mandates a cruciform existence. Now this word cruciform, 
might be a strange word. It's a beautiful word. It just means taking the shape of the cross. A cruciform existence is an existence where our lives take the shape of the cross. In this speech, Job will foreshadow Jesus, the most innocent sufferer who suffered a literal death on a cross for the sin of the world. And in foreshadowing Jesus, Job will also foreshadow the Christian life, the life lived in obedience to the master who died on the cross so others could have life. He's the same one who commanded us to take up our cross and follow him. That's a cruciform life. He's the one who bids us come to him that we may come and die. He's the one who said that the greatest among you will be your servant. This is the Christian's cruciform existence. It was Job's experience. It was Jesus' experience. And it's ours. And this cruciform existence has three parts. Number one, God wants you to die. God wants you to die. Eliphaz accused Job of stretching out his hand to defy God, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. And Job will now deny that charge, and he will say essentially, Eliphaz, you're wrong because I am not the aggressor here. God is the aggressor here. Look at verse 7. Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. It's like God sliced me open and my guts came out and I'm lying in a pool of blood. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. He says, if I were a city, I would have been sacked long ago. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Job pictures Jesus. Jesus is the one who had no violence who had all purity, the one yet God attacked him with the full force of his anger against sin. Jesus was the one who knew no sin, but he became sin, and he suffered from our sin, and he suffered death and hell. His body was broken, his blood spilled out on the ground, and our faith is a gory faith. And in picturing Jesus, Job also pictures the Christian. 
The one whom God expects to die with Christ in order that we may live with Christ. If you trust in Jesus, your life is not your own. Your body is not your own. Your possessions do not belong to you. God can do with you what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And before he can give you new eternal life, he must do away with the old worldly life. All that you love must be broken to pieces. And who you are, who I am, is of no consequence to him. He wants to remake you into what he wants you to be. And that means he just might need to crush you and crush your dreams. When I was in high school, I loved math and I did well at math. In fact, when I graduated from high school, I won the department award for math at my graduation. And my dream of math was crushed. And I ended up deciding to major in music in college, and all of my math teachers were terribly disappointed in me. They thought I was throwing my life away. And I went to college, and in 1996 in college, I remember telling a friend of mine that I would never go into ministry. And I focused on music, and I wanted to be the best musician I could be. And when I graduated from college, I won my university's departmental award for music. And then all my professors were disappointed when I decided to go into ministry. They thought I was throwing away my life. I thought when I graduated from college that I'd be married by age 24. It, when it looked like I might hit that target, God crushed that dream. The girl that I thought I would marry actually broke up with me and wouldn't tell me why. And this happened and I, I, it left me laying on the floor crying uncontrollably. My life has been one of one crushed dream after another crushed dream after another crushed dream. And some of you, some of you today, you might need to hear that your dreams aren't big enough. That God has much more for you than you can imagine. And if that's you and you're a man, come on our men's retreat in a few weeks. We're going to talk about that. But that's not what Job has to say to you today. Job is speaking to those of you who need to know that God will crush your dreams because God's dreams for you are bigger and better. And you need to experience the death of your dreams so that you can experience the refreshing life of his dreams. God wants you to die. That's the first part of the cruciform existence. Second, your well-being is not inside, but outside. Job is weeping and weeping, and he's seeking some foundation for confidence. And our culture would come to the rescue, and they would say, Job, look deep inside your heart and find your true self and follow your heart. You'll get the confidence and the assurance you're looking for. But Job knows that his well-being can't come from the inside. It must come from the outside. He needs evidence. He needs a witness. And he needs a pledge. Look at verse 18. O earth, cover not my blood. 
and let my cry find no resting place. Job says he needs evidence so that his blood, which has been shed by God, can cry out for justice. It's kind of like Abel, but far more tragic. He needs the evidence to stand there. Next, he needs a witness. Verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. You see, Job, he trusts that he has a witness in heaven. His thinking has changed. In chapter 9, verse 33, Job said, There is no arbiter between God and me. There is no one who might lay his hand on both God and me and bring us together. It's never going to happen. And here he says, My witness is in heaven. My witness, it's, it's not my friends. They scorn me. It's not God who's attacking me. But it's one who would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Job needs one like a son of man, yet who lives in heaven. One who has a hearing with God and understands God, and yet can, like a son of man, argue man's case before God. You see, Job's thinking has changed. He realizes that there, he, he has an arbiter. And in fact, because his good deeds have nothing to do with what God thinks of him, it means that in order for God to be just, there must be such a witness, an arbiter in heaven. Because if Job's deeds have nothing to do with his fate, then there must be someone who understands God and who understands Job and can bring them together. And his fate depends not on himself but on another. This one who will come between him and God. And then in chapter 17, he goes on, and in verse 3, he asks God, Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who else is there who will put up security for me? He needs a pledge from God that God will give him an arbiter. How does this apply? If your fate has nothing to do with your performance then your well-being cannot come from inside of you. It must come from outside of you. Job sees that more clearly than he has ever seen it. Do you see it? Do you look for evidence of God's work in your life? We open the floor every Sunday to sharing evidence of how God is at work in our lives. Do you look for that evidence? Do you trust your witness in heaven? Again, Job didn't know his name, but we know his name. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the advocate that we have before the Father. He's really there. He's in the flesh. He's begging God for your life. And do you rely on God's pledge that we celebrated it last week? Jesus rose from the dead. That's your pledge. Because Jesus rose from the dead, so will you. And it will all be worth it in the end. All this pain that doesn't go away will be worth it. The good news mandates a cruciform existence. The last part of that that Job talks about in verses 6 through 12, I won't read it and I'm not even going to cover it. I'm just going to mention it. It's that the people you love won't understand. It's part of what it means to live a life in the, way of the, in the shape of the cross. The people you love 
won't understand. Warren is going to cover that more fully next week because in Job's next speech, he will expand on that point much more. Let's now look at the final reason why the good news is so disturbing. And it's because not only does the pain never go away and it mandates a cruciform existence, but it wraps your hope up in death. Verse 13 of chapter 17. If I hope for Sheol, that's what they called the grave, if I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? In Job's mind, here at the end of his speech, he believes that death will have the final victory. Any hope he has will die with him, will go down into the grave. His only family will be a pit, a worm, and a deep, dark bedspread. His hope for evidence, for a witness, and for a pledge, it's just a pipe dream. And that's why it matters for us to make sure that we see the really good news that Job paved the way. Because Job's fate had nothing to do with his performance. That was bad news for him. Death would win the final victory. A good man would go to the grave and his hope would die with him. But one day... God himself would walk the earth. He would take the form of one like a son of man, and he would experience Job's suffering. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Think of some of these things that Jesus said about himself. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The son of man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The Son of Man came, and the Son of Man went to the grave, but death would not have the final say. The Son of Man, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Son of Man will come in His glory and His angels with Him and He will sit on His glorious throne. And so Jesus descended into the grave Himself, but He broke those bars of Sheol that Job talked about and your hope is now wrapped up in death, but not the same way as Job's. Your hope is not wrapped up in death in a hopeless way, like my hope will die with me. But your hope is in the death of the Son of Man, Jesus, who died on your behalf, and His death gives you life. His promises give you promises of better things to come. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is now your advocate with the Father. And so, the good news of God's free mercy. It offends those who don't think they need it, and it deeply disturbs those who firmly believe it because it means the pain never goes away. It mandates a cruciform existence, and it wraps your hope up in death. If these things disturb you, 
you're in good company. These things are true because your fate has absolutely nothing to do with your good deeds. And that is hard to swallow. But it's the only news that is really good news. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, Lord, this news is hard because we desperately want to have something to earn, something to hold on to, something we can take credit for. Lord, please forgive us. Jesus, thank you for coming to be one like a son of man who would argue our case before God, one who would take our sin, one who would forgive our sins, one who would die in our place and rise again to show us what God has for us. Lord, help us to trust.